Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. This is the start of our new Deep in History segment, and I'm glad that you're joining us. Uh, my guest, and I would say, I guess I could call our resident scholar here at the Coming Home Network International, is uh, Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson, who we're connecting with up in Minnesota. Hello, Monsignor. Hello, Marcus. Good to be with you. It's great to be with you. We. Uh, I'm not sure when our audience will be hearing this, but as we're taping this, we're in this crazy time of uh, social distancing. And uh, and I know you're up at your cabin up up in upper Minnesota, and, and I'm, I'm still at the library at the Coming Home Network. But uh, any of you guys watching us on video know that I, I, I can't even get to a haircutter. So I'm starting to look like Einstein, though I have only a, a minute bit of whatever intelligence he had, so I mean I'm not claiming that obviously, but Monsignor, it's great to join you. Uh, and uh, I wondered if you could, as we begin this first episode, we're going to do an introduction to Irenaeus, but I'd like you to open us with a word of prayer, if you would. All right. Okay. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Blessed Lord, we thank you for your promise to be with us always, and that by having confidence in you and trusting in you, we know that all things work together for those who love you. We pray that you will bless us and help us through these times. And especially as we are surrounded with this great cloud of witnesses, we pray for the prayers and the love of the saints to strengthen and support us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thank you, Monsignor. Um, before we jump into the introduction, I just want to remind the audience that what we're going to focus on is uh, the, the classic book by St. Irenaeus, Against Heresies, and Maybe, you know, one of the reasons, Monsignor, you and I thought it'd be great to do this is because, I mean, starting all the way back with John Henry Cardinal Newman, all the way through the work that we do, so many men and women are drawn to the church through the early church fathers. And I know that was true for you, we talked about it in our last episode. But again, maybe as we jump into the introduction, uh, one of the things we want to talk about is both how important Irenaeus was and how important this book is. So I'd like you to, to, enter, to uh, uh, bring us into this introduction about this wonderful book. Well, th thank you, Marcus. Um, it was uh, in November at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops Assembly in Baltimore that we had this delightful moment where uh, we had to vote on a, a resolution that would support um, the Holy Father declaring St. Irenaeus, or St. Irenaeus, depending on what side of the Atlantic you're on, um, a doctor of the church. And uh, it, was a, it was just a joy to see that because um, 
Cardinal Donardo said, it was the first time we ever had a totally unanimous vote, <laughs> <laughs> which was just a delight, you know. Um, but uh, he is regarded as, um, for all practical purposes, the first systematic theologian of the church. And in so many areas, um, uh, well, first of all, he, he gathers all of the tradition together and lays it out in an intelligible way for us. Um, but, you know, he's, he's of really seminal importance in several areas. And I just maybe just hi highlight a few of these. All right. Thank um, you. Um, uh, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, uh, he, he's really important on that subject. Um, he, we have early, the early, um, foundations of what will become a couple centuries later, uh, the church's, uh, declarations about, um, about Christ. Mm -hmm. um, um, he develops this theory, um, we, in theology, we call it soteriology, this uh, doctrine of recapitulation to try to explain what the work of Jesus Christ was when he came into the world. Um, you and I have talked many times about his contribution to ecclesiology. Yeah. Um, uh, he, the doctrine of apostolic succession, the doctrine of the primacy of the Church of Rome um, are things that we find there. He's probably the first theologian we have that gives us some very clear statements about Mary. So in Mariology, um, he's very important. And then, um, and then um, he's important in the whole uh, work of establishing what the canon of Scripture is yeah. and how, how it should be interpreted. Um, and so, you know, in, in all these areas, he's made an incredible contribution to the church. And uh, the... Any of you who've read the book know that the first two books of the entire book, first two volumes of it, are not easy to read because uh, he's focusing in, in, in very fine detail on the false teachings of many of the Gnostic teachers that are influencing people. And in many ways, that's the motive of why he needs to put this out there, because it's as if the church needs a systematic theologian to address all these false teachings out there. So he uses as his uh, uh, armor uh, scripture and tradition. And to me, that's why I loved reading him so much, because on the one hand, many of the false teachings are still around today. They've slipped through and they're still influencing so many in our world. But at some point, we ask the question, when did the letters of Paul or the letters of John or the Gospels become Scripture? You know, when did people have the audacity to claim these as Scripture? And we don't have an exact point, but we see it happening. Yes. And we see it there in Irenaeus. Because he pretty much has the canon 
um, with, with some systems. There are a few things he includes that yeah. <laughs> ultimately were not, but um, but it's pretty, you know, and he's writing at the end of the second century, so maybe by 190 or so, um, it's pretty clear what it what the tr authentic canon of scripture is. So yeah, and you know, I would encourage us as we study and read him that for now we've got a we we got to leave aside. Origin. We've got to lead, leave aside uh, Clement of Alexandria. We've got to leave aside Augustine and and the uh, you know Nicaea and none of that's happened yet, right? Right. Yeah. In many ways, for him, the sources of the of the of authority are, and we'll get to this scripture. And that apostolic deposit of faith. Those are the authorities, right? And how to find that? What that? Where that? How is that authentically handed on in the church? Yeah. All right. Well, then, Monsignor, let's move forward in your introduction. You had what was your first point you wanted to take? Well, us to? To, first of all, I wanted to say a few things about um, his early life, okay? Because this is very important for what we're doing. Um, um, because in his own life, he we can connect him one generation on from the apostles. Yeah, amazing! It's really astonishing. So, so Irenaeus was born um, and raised in Smyrna, um, in Asia Minor. And if we wanted to go there today, we would we would fly over. Well, not right now, but later on, uh, to the modern day Turkish city of Izmir. Um, and Izmir is about, um, well, actually Izmir is a city now of about two million people or something like that. It's a big place. But Smyrna was um, about 20 miles north of Ephesus. So um, if you think about the little maps in the Bible, um, we'll always find Ephesus on there because of John and yeah. and and Paul and all that. But, um, so Smyrna goes just a little bit to the north of there, and so we can we probably can put Saint Irenaeus's birth around the year one hundred forty. Nothing exact, but it's probably going to be about one hundred forty, given. Um, what he tells us about his his life as a young adult, because um, Eusebius in his church history, book five, gives us some amazing documents, and one of them is a letter from um, Irenaeus to um, to a priest in Rome named Florinus, and there he talks about um, his early life and how he remembered. Um, sitting at the feet of the Bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp. And um, he, in, in quite vivid detail, he talks about how Polycarp would reminisce about his time, because Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. And he knew John and the other apostles that were in that area. And um, so um, his apostolic connections are solid gold. Um, and. And so we, if any of the people that are joining us want to go a little bit deeper into this, if 
If you go into um, the Church History of Eusebius, Book 5, Chapter 20, you can find this incredible letter from um, from um, uh, from Irenaeus to um, to uh, Florinus that talks about his early life with um, with with the apostle, uh, not the apostle, but the successor of the apostles, right. uh, Bishop Polycarp. So, and then and then the next thing we we are, I mean the scholars think what happened is that. Irenaeus was basically he signed up for a mission trip, if we can put it in our terms, because um, the church in Smyrna and throughout Asia Minor, um, they had done a great work of missionary activity to uh, to Gaul, or what is today southeastern France, and um, and so it's possible that. He was. He came over as a relatively young man from Smyrna, and he initially went to Rome. A lot of us think that he probably encountered Justin Martyr at that point, hmm. um, who was, um, yep. you know, flourishing in in the city of Rome, and then um, and then he went on to uh, the modern city of Lyon in. Um, in Roman times, it was called Lugdunum. Um, it was a it was a little town, not that little of a town, actually quite an important town, on on the Rhone River in southeastern France, where um, he was ordained a priest and he was serving in the church there, um, and he he comes onto the scene, you know, in a way that we can really. Um, uh, point out in the year 177, because that was that was when the bishop of Lyon named Pothinus um, sent him to Rome um, for a consultation with the Pope Eleutherus, and it was about something that um, rings has a modern ring to it. <laughs> the problem of how do you handle the charismatics in our congregation? <laughs> because there was this movement in the early in the in the second century called uh, Montanism, and and uh, the Montanists were they were they were also came from Asia Minor. Um, they followed um, to the west, and they were affecting the church with. Um, uh, but their basic argument was that the church isn't purely an institution. It's a spiritual entity and the Holy Spirit is active in it. And so they were stressing all sorts of personal encounters with the Holy Spirit. And it seems that Irenaeus was sent to Rome to basically to encourage Pope Eleutherus not to be too harsh on the Montanists. Hmm. Um, in 20 years or so, that all changed because <laughs> the Montanists went crazy. Um, Montanus, you know, declared that he was a, a reincarnation of the Holy Spirit. They practiced women's ordination, yeah. <laughs> all Is these it... things. So, you know, in 20 years, the Montanists were rejected. Um, but, but anyway, Irenaeus was um, he comes onto the scene in the year 177 because. He carries a letter from the Bishop of Lyon to the Bishop of Rome. 
And it was while he was in Rome that things changed very dramatically for him. And um, I go, that's my next point. But okay. It, Monsignor, wasn't it the Montanists that eventually captured Tertullian? Yes. Yeah. Tertullian was moved by them. Um, but eventually he got tired of them too. <laughs> and he started his own organ, his own church called the Tertullian Church. <laughs> okay. Well, again, these, these groups, when we look around the world today, sound very familiar. You know, the idea of that exactly. it's just the Holy yeah. Spirit, that there's no institutional church. Uh, you know, it's the same cards that the devil plays off and on throughout history. And we see it reflected. And but but it's interesting to see that that so the, the bishop of of Lyons recognized in Irenaeus uh, a, a great intellect and a, a great influence that he would send to the bishop of Rome to maybe say at that point, uh, their heart is in the right place. Uh, yeah. But again, not seeing where they were headed, which is so often the case with so many of the schismatic yeah. groups in the history of the church. That's right. And, and the Montanists were, uh, the, the Holy Father at the time, Eleutherus, was, he, he was not close to them at all. Um, but it just, they just kind of got out of hand. And at one point they declared that um, they had more authority than bishops did because bishops were just institutional men, but they were men of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> well, I mean, in my mind, I envision St. Francis um, going before the Pope, humbly saying, will you accept our order? And the Pope wasn't convinced at first. And so the, the Holy Father always is in that position of trying to decide, is this a good group or a bad group or, you know, and, uh, and then, you know, in, in St. Francis's case, you see the Pope's, you know, firming. Yeah. That uh, very austere, a little bit more austere direction than the Montanists went. All right, Monsignor, what's your second point for us? Okay, well, how, we want to talk now about how um, Irenaeus became a bishop. Okay. And there's something extraordinary that's revealed in this story. And I thought um, we might want to spend a bit of time with that too. Okay. So St. Irenaeus um, is a young priest in Rome in 177. And while he's away, a persecution breaks out in his home church in Lyon and also in the neighboring church of Vienne. So these are towns that are about 20 miles apart, Lyon and Vienne um, in southeast France. And the bishop, um, Pothinus, most of the priests and quite a few of the laity, including St. Blandina, uh, whom we commemorate in the calendar, yeah. probably some 48 of them were martyred for their faith. Mm -hmm. And um, when Irenaeus returned, um, there was no one left in the church to lead it. He, he was it. And so he had to rebuild the church. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting about this story, um, oh, many things are interesting about the story, but this persecution happened during the reign of 
what was regarded as a good emperor, Marcus Aurelius. (laughs) And I've been reading a little bit of Marcus Aurelius um, up here in isolation (laughs) late this week, uh, his meditations. Marcus Aurelius was um, uh, very devoted to Stoicism. And the early Christian apologists were fascinated by the Stoics, and they found Stoicism a kind of uh, fertile meeting ground. And so that a lot of times, because of the high moral, you know, the Stoics basically argued that, that we're responsible for how we live, and we can't put it off on the gods, you know. And so this was a fertile meeting ground between Christians and pagans. And and Marcus Aurelius was actually regarded as um, not a friend to Christians, but not an enemy of Christians. And what apparently was going on here, and in a, a couple of other places in the empire, is you have local persecution. Yeah. So it was the local governor that um, got all wound up. And what we think happened, what we think happened is it was um, at the time of a pagan festival, and a lot of people were worried because the Christians just didn't fit in, and they weren't doing pro- they, were, they saw them not honoring the, the gods, mm. and they were afraid that it would bring curses and problems. Um, to their city. And so they began to argue um, for a, a roundup and a persecution of the Christians. And it started, um, we, uh, most of our records for this are actually from a letter that the church in Lyon wrote to um, the, the sending missionary church back in Asia Minor. Mm-hmm. And that's also in Eusebius Church History Book 5. What they, what it started out with is that these early Christians in Lyon were confined to their own home. They were not allowed to be out in the public square. <laughs> and as this persecution wound up, some of the pagan um, servants that were working in these Christian households began to spread all these rumors about these Christians. Mm. And what they denounce them for um, is Thyestian feasts and Oedipodian intercourse. Thyestes was, in mythology, Thyestes accidentally ate his child. He was served as child. Mm. And Oedipus had sexual relations with his mother without knowing it. Um, and this is clearly a, a reference to the Christian Eucharist. Yeah. It was celebrated in secret. Um, there, there were no, um, you certainly did not live stream the Holy Eucharist in the early church. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it was celebrated in secret. And the rumors that went around in the pagan communities were that, um, these were people that met and they ate the flesh of the little baby that they were worshiping. Mm-hmm. And they did so in the context of these love feasts. So they accused them of incest and, and um, having orgies. 
And this was the kind of nonsense that um, these early Christians had to deal with. And um, uh, in the letter that we have from the church of Lyon, they said initially our martyrs were very concerned that um, the less firm of the number of Christians in the church there, um, that they would apostatize they would be afraid of persecution. They'd apostatize, renounce their faith, and so um, discredit it in the eyes of the world. And what's so beautiful about how they told the story is that the church devoted itself during this time to praying for their weaker brethren, that they would be strong, and they also prayed for their persecutors, the way that St. Stephen mm. prayed for those that were stoning him. And, um, and they, the letter concludes basically with a, a joyous note that so many of these weaker brethren that had fallen away temporarily, they came back to profess their faith in Jesus Christ. And, <laughs> and then many of them were martyred after that. But that's the church that, um, yeah. that Irenaeus came back to, 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 basically to be the bishop of. It's an amazing story, and uh, what a beautiful picture of, uh, yeah. it's not the earliest, there are some earlier things on this about, about the kind of prejudices that Christians had, but, um, but you can see how the pagans, they did not understand the mystery of the Eucharist, and, and they thought terrible things were going on. And there's uh, the early persecutions martyrdoms were because they considered Christians atheists. Yes. We were atheists. And it wasn't so much that they necessarily rejected Christ or the Christian God. They didn't get that far. The point was Christians didn't worship the Roman gods or even the Greek god. We, you know, that, so we were atheists. We were rejecting all that they, and that's as far as they got. But then you have the transition from those that are still committed to the Greek ideas, the Roman ideas, and then when they start listening to the Jewish Christian ideas, they try and figure out how to explain them, given where they're coming from. And of course, we have the Catholic apologists like Martin, like Justin Martyr, uh, for example, who attempted to uh, explain the Christian faith through the philosophies in a way that was still faithful to Christianity, but yet could speak to the philosophers. But then you had those that were more interested in holding fast to their philosophies and tried to explain the things they were finding in Christianity, the incarnation, or, you know, how could that God of the Old Testament, who seemed such a mean God, uh, be the God that created the world or was the father of this man, Jesus? So there, out of that came all those Gnostic ideas, all of which would have been in that area that Leon, that uh, Irenaeus felt the call from God yeah. to take the leadership reins. Yeah. yeah. Right. So it's amazing. He came back to uh, 
a church that had been persecuted profoundly, but um, what was left of it was very strong. And the church grew during his years as bishop. Um, it, it, I mean, it had a phenomenal growth from what we can see. Um, we'd, what we mostly know about Irenaeus at this point, from this point forward, is that he, his work uh, against Gnostics and um, so his work against heresies and, and that wonderful work that he wrote a kind of a catechesis called the demonstration yeah. of the preaching of the gospel. Um, uh, marvelous piece of catechetical work. Um, but as there's very little that we know about you know, his activity as a bishop except for one thing. And since we're in Holy Week, while well, we're recording this today, it might be worth mentioning this too. Yeah. Um, he he comes again back on the the world stage, if you will, um, about the year 190. And um, it was that that was probably the year around that time that he appealed to Pope Victor in Rome um, about a problem that had developed um, because of all of these immigrant people from Asia Minor that were living in the West, in Rome, particularly in Rome. And what they brought with them was uh, a tradition or a custom of celebrating Easter on the actual date of Passover. Um, the, the 14th day of the Jewish lunar month of Nisan. And so whatever day that 14th day happened, that was the day they celebrated Easter. In other words, not um, necessarily on a Sunday. It, yes, that's right. I'm not sure what Passover was this year. Right. Um, it must be, I think the rule is, it's the, at the, is it the full moon after the, yeah, I'm not sure. after the vernal equinox, the spring equinox? Yeah. Anyway, um, so Pope Victor, um, he was offended by some Christians celebrating Easter on one day. Um, they were called, it was called the Quarto Deciman controversy, the Latin word for 14, um, 14 Nisan. And so Pope Victor decreed that um, really it's probably the first act of papal <laughs> uh, infallibility or papal authority universal ordinary jurisdiction that we have, he declared that the whole world should be on the, whole Christian world should be on the same page, yeah. that it should be on the Sunday nearest to Passover, not not on Passover itself. And, and uh, this created a tremendous resentment amongst those that came out of the, uh, the world of um, Asia Minor Christianity. They, they claim St. John as their authority for celebrating right. Easter on that day. So, um, so Irenaeus appeals to Pope Victor. He asks him if he could be gracious and tolerant of these different traditions. Um, so we always say that, that that is Irenaeus living up to his name because the word means peace and he is being <laughs> ironic here. Didn't, uh, didn't he use in his argument, didn't he point to Polycarp? Yes, yeah. 
Yeah, and um, uh, yeah, and if you wanted to follow that through, um, it's um, chapter, it's book five, chapter twenty-four in Eusebius's Church History, yeah. where that where that letter is is referred to. Um, yeah, I was thinking that he pointed yeah. to Polycarp as an example of someone able, not so much the word compromise, but to, you know, to able to remain in fellowship with other Christians that had some differences on this issue. It, it didn't make it a big deal. Yeah, because, yeah, and I think he mentions there too that Polycarp actually made a trip to Rome um, to consult with the Pope at the time on this subject. And they had, at that point, they had, uh, this would probably be 50 years earlier or something like that, they had agreed on, um, um, you know, being flexible about this sort of thing. Yeah. Pope Victor won the battle ultimately because <laughs> yeah. at the Council of Nicaea, um, that was where we have the declaration that everybody is going to be on the same date for Easter. But, uh, yeah, I guess we could say he won. He did, but <laughs> in a way, this was one of the beginning of the sore points that would eventually lead to the division between the East and the West. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it I was think that's, one a, of, that's a good point. One of the many things. All right, Monsignor. So we've we figured out how uh, Irenaeus became a bishop, and you know we, we don't know which seminary he went to, right? Uh, <laughs> well, I always imagine that um, you know he did his minor seminary under um, Bishop Polycarp, and <laughs> major seminary. Maybe uh, one of his professors was Justin Martyr. Who knows? <laughs> but he uh, and we don't know how he died. Um, Saint Jerome says he was martyred, but there's no evidence else, no uh, supporting evidence for that. And uh, most people just assume that he died somewhere around the year 202, probably of natural causes. But um, all right, we don't know any more than that. So, all right, very uh, good. Uh, would Would you like to before our next program? Would you like to give us what's your next step? Would you like to give us a little summary of the book or? What you're thinking? Well, I, I mean, you've already mentioned, Marcus, how difficult book one is. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're next week. I thought when we next week, I thought we'll basically go. We'll focus on the bits that talk about um, that New Testament figure. Yes, yes, very good. You know very that good. guy. Yeah, yeah, Simon. We're gonna. I think as we talked. The beauty of this book is that there are gems um, of great beauty and great importance in the history of the church in this book. And, and part of the problem is, is sifting through a lot of the other stuff that was important to his time, but maybe not so much to ours. Right. Though it, it can be like a type of what we're going through. So we'll try and focus on the on the hilltops as we go through and get summaries of the rest so that those of you that and, want to read will will take you through it. And I, I just say, too, to um, people that want, because it will be intimidating if you try to read this through in one sitting. Oh, yeah. um, but but there's one part in book one that um, it's in book one, chapter 10. It's a it's quoted. It's about the universality of the church. And it's quoted in the Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 173 and 174. 
And that will be, that's probably as good of an entry into book one. And then we can talk about this extraordinary character, Simon Magus. All right. <laughs> who, who um, Irenaeus believed with all of his heart that all of these later Gnostic figures, they are the intellectual children of Simon. Um, the guy that tried to buy his office in the New Testament. That's right. Uh, and he's mentioned in the book of Acts, in case of those of yeah. you who are wondering. All right, Monsignor Steenson, thank you very much for this introduction. And uh, we'll pause there, everyone, and we'll pick it up next week. Again, uh, the book that we're using as our textbook is the translation by John Keeble, who was a very close personal friend of John Henry Cardinal Newman. And this book is in print now, but also I think Monsignor, we put a link, I think on the website where they can find it online. Is that right? Yes, I think it, I think there's a, a PDF copy of it online or, or whatever form it's on, so. All right. Yeah. Thank you, Monsignor. God bless you. Thank you, yeah. same to you. And all of you watching, thank you. Look forward to joining you again next week. Thank you.